Facilities management contracts sound like mundane things, but they're expensive and they require no less oversight than any other type of contract. But the National Security Agency didn't do a stellar job of managing a $400 million contract for facilities and logistics. For the lessons learned, we turn to NSA Inspector General Robert Storch. Mr. Storch, good to have you back. It's great to be on, Tom. Tell us what this contract was for, what it did, and what it was all about. Sure. So this audit looked at the NSA's award and administration of, as you say, a contract for over $400 million for installation and logistics services for NSA to be performed over a five-year period of performance, starting with FY 2016 and going through FY 2020. And basically, the contract involved both installation and logistics services. So things like routine and minor maintenance, warehousing, storage, mail, transportation services. And then later, and this ended up being the basis for a finding, the agency added, without competing it, property services involving things like inventorying and tracking. That was another $35 million. And I have to ask, now that it's all over and the report's coming out now, is it too late to fix anything? Well, we think it's really important to look at it. First of all, I should say this is an unclassified version of a previously uh, issued classified report. As you may recall from prior visits that I've been fortunate to have on your show, since I've come on board here at the NSA, we've been doing unclassified versions of our semi-annual reports, uh, working on our seventh one right now. And then also, uh, this is our fifth uh, unclassified version of a report or summary of a report of the underlying reports, questioning a total of over a billion dollars in those reports. So we think it's important from that point of view. From a time point of view, a lot of the work on this was done prior to the pandemic. And then we released the classified version of the report last year and then prepared the unclassified version, which we released more recently. Perhaps more importantly, though, we think it's really important to do this sort of oversight because, as I hope we'll get a chance to talk about, we identified a number of significant gaps and deficiencies in the agency's processes, both for awarding these sort of contracts. And in this case, I didn't mention it before, but this was a sole source Section 8A contract under the SBA's 8A program that was awarded to an Alaska Native corporation. We found significant problems with the way in which that contracting action was handled. So our recommendations are largely forward-looking to get the agency to fix its processes so these sort of problems don't happen again. Yes, and it looks like this one had almost an original sin in the way it was awarded in the first place because you said it's possible they didn't follow the rules for single source and for the 8A program and a lot of other things and Alaska Native. So tell us about the origination issues. Sure, absolutely. It's a great question. So actually, you have to go back a little in history. This contract, the requirement was initially identified back in 2007, and there was a contract awarded, a five-year contract for FY 2008 to 2012 to do this work at NSA. And then as that contract was coming to an end, the NSA contracted for a bridge contract for a period of three years, the purpose for which was to enable the agency to be able to prepare to compete the contract going forward. But we find in the report that they did not execute the actions in a timely manner that would be necessary to compete the contract. So effectively, they had a scramble at the end of that period, just literally with weeks to go, to go back to SBA in order to do another 8A. They initially were going to go back to the same company, but that company was no longer eligible. And so they awarded it to a sister company, which supported the same tribe. There's a lot of information that related to that in terms of the fact that 
it was a sister company and they supported the same tribe that was not communicated to the SBA. But eventually they end up awarding the civil source to this sister company for another five years. And one of the things that troubled us about this was that there were not provisions in place to ensure that there was timely communication with the SBA so that SBA could make an informed decision and also that they didn't adequately justify using a sole source in this, particularly given that the whole purpose of the bridge had been to compete it. So there were a whole host of problems we found related to all of this, and we made recommendations to help them to address those. We're speaking with NSA Inspector General Robert Storch. And the other interesting thing is, before we get to the possibly wrongfully done add-on to it worth $35 million is that toward the end of the report, you state that there was never a full performance evaluation done in the five years to see if this wrongly awarded thing was even a high-quality program, at least for the agency. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that also troubled us significantly is that when we looked at the administration of the contract, we found that they did not have sort of the guidance in place to effectively administer the contract and then that they had not, as you say, done and documented a full performance evaluation. There'd been sort of a partial one that didn't have all the metrics that was not fully documented, but they didn't really have the procedures in place to ensure that they're doing those sort of robust evaluations that everyone knows are really critical when you're evaluating performance of a contractor, uh, particularly on a contract of this size. And in looking at it, did you get the sense that the agency was at least satisfied with the performance, even if they couldn't quantify or document it? I wouldn't get into characterizing the agency's reaction to the contractor. I mean, the fact is that they had one contractor here for the eight-year period and then went with a sister company that supported the same tribe for the next five years. So as you had mentioned earlier, they chose to add in there what we viewed as beyond the scope modification to give additional work to that same contractor in terms of $35 million in inventorying and tracking work, property services that we found should have been separately competed. So they compounded (laughs) the error of the wrong possible award and the lack of oversight with additions to it that might not have been proper. We found that those additional services should not have been added on to the sole source contract under something called the cardinal change doctrine, that there were new labor categories, there were rates, there were a substantial number of new employees that had to be hired and trained, new processes had to be developed to do those property services that were different in kind and in scale from what was done under the initial contract and we believe should have been separately competed from that contract. We also were troubled that during the course of the process on the initial contract, the contracting folks who had to sign off raised a number of questions related to the justifications that were established, as did the Office of General Counsel, but there weren't procedures in place to ensure that actions were actually taken in response to those comments. So one of the recommendations we make, which we, we think is a particularly important recommendation, is that they ensure that they have appropriate procedures for when the agency itself spots issues, that it makes sure those are addressed in a timely fashion, which did not happen here. I was going to say, where are the whistleblowers when you need them, or did you have one in this case? 
Well, I, we, we don't identify whistleblowers, but I, but I will say we are, we are passionate about whistleblowers in the IG community and certainly here at NSA, as I think we've discussed in other conversations, that's something that has been a, a real area of emphasis for me personally as the IG here. I think whistleblowers perform a critical service to government agencies and to the public when they come forward with information, and we encourage them very much to do so. And the other thing about this is that it sounds like the way they conducted this solicitation and the procurement and the add-on, since there weren't a bunch of competing vendors, there was no protest mechanism to kind of maybe bring some of the flaws to light, which often happens. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, we found uh, basically that during the bridge period, they took some initial actions. We found a list of some potential companies in terms of market research, but very little done actually to do the normal sort of work that you would do to identify companies. And in fact, they went with a process called the alpha process, which was not documented in DOD or NSA policies or in the FAR that basically contemplates, uh, as we understand it, sort of a more collaborative sort of relationship between the contractor and the agency to work out what the requirements for the contract would be. And when that is used out in the broader community, again, it's our understanding because it's not documented here or wasn't, but we, our understanding is that that's used in situations where you're going to sole source because obviously you wouldn't be able to do that if you were properly talking to lots of different competitors. And so they used this alpha process, and that was one of the pieces of evidence we found that showed, along with internal emails and interviews, that they had intended to do this as a sole source from pretty early on in the process. And as you say, that has implications both before and after the contract award. Yeah. Alpha process sounds like, you know, preparation X or something. <laughs> you could have called it anything. <laughs> and you did give them quite a long list of recommendations. And from what I was able to read, the agency mostly agreed with you, maybe a little sheepishly. Yeah, so the the agency ultimately agreed. There were a couple where they didn't agree right at the time we issued the report, but shortly thereafter, I mentioned we do our semi-annual reports to Congress, and we actually have a write-up, a much shorter write-up of this in our last semi-annual report, the public version of that that's on our website if, if folks are interested. And by the time of that, the agency had agreed to take actions that once completed would be sufficient to meet the intent of all our recommendations. Got it. Robert Storch is the Inspector General of the National Security Agency. As always, thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Tom. Good to talk with you. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt 
you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. 
And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. 
And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.